This message is brought to you by Heartland Family Fellowships. Hi, my name is Steve Finney, and I will be your speaker today. We thank you for listening in on our podcast and hope that the Lord does bless you as you listen today. The topic of our message this morning is called Jonah. When I think of Jonah, I think of uh, Jesus Christ, oddly enough. Of course, Jesus himself compared himself to Jonah. The three days in the belly of the whale, three days in the tomb, and the resurrection coming out and the 40 days on earth going into Nineveh and then all of a sudden the Jonah story kicks into a brand new different bent and um, and that some of the things that Jesus doesn't compare himself to that I would like to have us talk about because I think it's very appropriate in regard to the lives of every single believer so what was Jonah's problem? When you think through hearing the story preached on, hearing the story told, it's usually told in children's storybooks because it's so cute. And in reality, I'm not sure Jonah would call it cute. It was probably the most stressful week of his life. And we're not quite sure how the story ended. I know the little girl put a nice little fun little ending to it. At least her mother did. But, scripturally speaking, that is not the case. Because the last thing out of Jonah's mouth is for the Lord to murder him. And I'm going to use the term murder because anytime death is not anointed by God, it is murder. Whether it is self-murder, and that's called suicide, or whether it is you have someone else murder you, or whether it is you get murdered, unless it's anointed by God. So I want to talk about that a little bit, because a lot of people, I got a feeling that the message this morning has got something uniquely pasted into it by the Lord God about these primary little messages we're going to talk about. So. After you review all the stories you've heard about Jonah, read, what do you consider was Jonah's problem? Hmm. What was Jonah's problem? I think he had too much cabbage or something. Seaweed. Seaweed sandwiches? Yes. I think it gave him indigestion. Huh? Pride. Pride? Fear. Oh, man, there's a lot of fear pa- pa- plastered in this book. Disobedience. Disobedience, which is a consequence of fear. He didn't understand mercy. He didn't understand what? Mercy. Yeah. <laughs> didn't understand mercy. He was trying to play judge the God. That's probably, yes. Trying to play God. Be the judge. So I'd like to have you just open your Bibles to Jonah, and I'm going to just point out the highlights that the Lord gave me in the life of Jonah for this particular seven-day journey. Okay, so chapter... 1 verse 1. What we have here is the book of genealogy of who? Jonah. Whoops, sorry. Need to start back here. Okay, someone read uh, verse 1 as I am uh, 
attempting to find the book. What's that? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amatite or Amatitan, saying, so the first thing that we need to see for our own lives as well as for Jonah is that God was very faithful in saying, I will bring you the word. I, and of course, God is the word. In the Old Testament, there is no difference. So whenever it says for uh, the word came to, it is God coming to the person. So the Abba Father comes actually to Jonah and he is about to speak. So in verse 2, he says, Arise and go to Nineveh. Now to give you a little quick history about and future about Nineveh, is Nineveh was classified as the most evil city on the face of the earth. And Nineveh was formed after God, God brought Babylon to ruin. So what happened is Nimrod decided to stick it to God, so to speak, and he went up north and he started the city Nineveh, as well as six other cities. So he was not about to be brought down by God. Very direct act of disobedience. This city was put together on a very direct act of disobedience. And so the city began to prosper. So 120,000 members inside of a, a city back then was a pretty good sized city. I mean, it'd be a pretty good sized town to our, to our numbers today. So this evil city that is the aftermath of what God did to Babylon God is asking Jonah to go to this city. And he knew exactly how tough this mission was going to be. So, verse 3, we hear, But he fled to wealth. So, Jonah hears this message. He, he gets basically woken up by the Lord. And he gets up and he hears this message from God. God says, go to Nineveh. And so, instead of Nineveh, he decides that he's going to go to Tarshish, which is the modern-day Vegas. That's what, that's what Tarshish was, was a city of gambling and great wealth. And that's the ship that he decides to get on. Now, if I was to show you a map, to get on that boat and go up to Tar Tarshish uh, is probably nothing more than a day cruise. Nineveh was all the way around through the Red Sea, around this way, up through the Euphrates River, and Nineveh was over here. It's a very, very long journey. It was a three-day walk across the desert, nonstop. So when he got eaten up by this whale, this whale had to take him all the way around. It had to be navigated by God to get all the way to Nineveh. It's a miraculous story. It shows an incredible amount of control that God has over this man's life in this, in this story. So he decides to go to Tarshish, but in verse 4 he says, God creates all these circumstances. So Jonah's on this boat, and all of a sudden the storms, God, someone read the verse, God does what to the storms? God does what? He hurls this thing. It's an appointment. It is a divine anointed appointment. God literally hurls this storm to stop the process of him running. As simple as that. And you're going to notice if you have uh, read carefully the book of Jonah, if you haven't, you really need to, but 
in reading the book very carefully, you're going to see in almost every single verse God doing something supernaturally to redirect the pathway that Jonah set out for himself. Much like what Q's testimony was, was unfolding. And so God creates these circumstances to just slow things down. So someone read verse 5 for us. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So fear settles in for the, for the crew. But Jonah today would probably wear one of those shirts that says, fear this. Or fear not. Some arrogant statement of I'm not afraid. And by the way, the, the Hebrew translation there of sound is what we would classify today as ream sleeping. The deepest level of sleep known to man. The ship is literally falling apart. God hurls this horrific storm and he's down in the hold of the ship. Do you know where the hold of the ship is? It's that pointed part in the front that takes all the waves. So here, Jonah is like this down there trying to sleep, but he wasn't trying to sleep. He was asleep in a deep sleep. He had completely turned God off. And that is what the attitude of I will not fear God does. This is a significant moment in the story. It is an attitude of your average person, and these sailors were probably pretty tough guys. They're probably used to dealing with tough storms, wouldn't you think? Yeah. But Jonah's like just flipped God off. Just turned him off like a radio. And he goes into this deep sleep in the hull of the ship, the part that's falling apart. And what does the next verse say? So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us that we will not perish. Okay, this wasn't one of the second guys in command. This wasn't one of the other boatmen. This was the authority of the ship approached him and said, What are you doing? How could you sleep during this time? And that had absolutely zero effect on Jonah. This is the second greatest error of the book or the life of Jonah. Is that one, he did not fear God. So he had a whole lifestyle of flipping things off. So he just simply did not fear. So God had to instill some fear into him, but everything God's putting in place is having zero effect on this man. So the next step is the authority, and the authority comes in and makes an announcement, and absolutely no response outside of this arrogant response of, someone read the next verse. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we can learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Okay, now this is very interesting. Uh, I've had counselees use this as a reason to gamble. And gambling is stock market stuff. Anyone who is investing money in stocks, you're gambling. That is what it is. So whether you do it the lightest form of stock market or you do it the most evil form and that is gambling over someone's life. 
no matter how you look at it, it's gambling. Now, the other, the other critical point is here is that these men did not want the responsibility of murder. I, I could understand that, couldn't you? So what they're doing is they, 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 they do this gamble thing on seeing basically whose fault this is. It's like spinning the bottle. And the bottle's going round and around and around and around. And it stops right on Jonah. Why? Because God did this. He stuck his finger out there and stopped it. So it pointed directly at Jonah. Even though the type of lots they casted back then was probably not a bottle. But it's the same concept. Every single thing that is happening with the men, the captain, the, the ocean or the sea or, and, the, and the storms, everything is manipulated by God. So you would think only the things of Jonah God would be controlling. No, he is controlling all the circumstances in this man's life. Okay, verse 8 says, And they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, from what people are you? So if you, if you look at this in the sense of uh, proper objectivity of dealing with for example, a, if you are analyzing a corporation or you're analyzing a church group or you're analyzing a family or you're analyzing a, a particular person, these are the steps you take. So now there's some data gathering going on to try to figure out, is, is this guy, since the lots have been casted on him, we've got to start asking some questions. Where are you from? What are you up to? What's happening here? Are you from a bad race? What's going on here? And of course, Jonah, in his very clever way, avoids the question. So in verse 9, Job lies by using the truth. It is one of the most deceptive, manipulative ways of a leader to avoid confrontation and inevitability of consequences. Someone read verse 9 and we'll kind of look at how he does this. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Hmm. Hebrew, absolutely. Absolute truth. Fearing God, he is literally quoting a verse previously written. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God. The God of the land and the God of the sea. He does not. The part he got right was he was a Hebrew. He does not fear God or he wouldn't be on the run. Plain simple facts. Verse 10, the authority and the men say, well, how could you do this to, the, to us? How can you be so incredibly selfish that you would do this to us? Well, Jonah wasn't really concerned about his, the ramifications of his decisions. Now think this through a little bit. Joe, uh, Jonah is w w literally willing to put the lives of all these men to death so that he could escape the control of the Lord. His, uh, his mindset was, you all can die. I'll die with you. But I am not bowing. I am not going to fear God. I will with my tongue. 
but I will not with my actions. That's what's going on. Well, they just didn't. They, they just didn't understand that. So anytime a man has lost touch with the reality of the consequences of his decisions on his environment, something very, very serious has to happen. And it's usually called death. And you find that pattern all the way through the Old Testament. And Jonah is just about ready to face death. He knows it. It's just that there's an act of grace that happens in the process. Verse 11. Well, what should we do? What are we going to do with this guy? He's being bluntly honest while he's lying. His lips are moving. What are we going to do with him? This is horrible. This man is willing to, to put us all to death for the sake of his own little rebellion. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid he is. So the captain of the ship, he realizes this man's not going to buckle. He is not going to get on his knees and repent. So you got all these sailors falling on their knees. If you remember the scripture, they're falling on their faces, calling on their gods, plural. And they're pleading for mercy, pleading for health, pleading for safety, pleading for salvation to their gods. And what's Jonah doing? <sighs> Is this about over? Lord showed me halfway through preparing this message. He says, Stephen, this is how my people view my messages on Sunday morning. Is the roast done? They want everything done. They don't want, they don't want to face the reality and the consequences of their decisions through the week. And it is destroying the church. It is destroying families. It's destroying our nation. It's destroying the world. But yet... <sighs> that is the state of mind we are living in today. With Christians. He's supposedly a Christian. Being Hebrew back then is like Christian. He was no more Hebrew than those men. He's just about to have his conversion. Yes, he is. And that was Jesus' point. That's the parallel of Jesus Christ. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is a message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on. Well, he didn't see it yet. He will. Okay, verse 12, he sets the men up to murder. Someone's got to read this verse for us. This is just, just mind-bending. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me... This great storm has come upon you. Okay. Now look, this this is this is a very gifted man. You gotta admit, okay? Pretty gifted prophet to walk into the worst city on the face of the earth and start preaching and one day have a hundred and twenty thousand conversions and literally a hundred percent return on his preaching. Pretty gifted guy, I think. And what does he do? Instead of walking out on the plank and going, that's it. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to end it all. Jumps. No. He's a coward. Jonah can't jump. He has to set someone else up to murder him. Three times in four chapters, Jonah 
tries to get someone to murder him because he doesn't even have the guts to take that into his own hands and jump. Because he understood the ways of the Hebrew is the one who does the pushing is the one who goes to Shoel. That he knew. So he had to get someone to push him because he didn't want to face that on the other side. It worked. So they tossed him into the sea. They did try to find another way. If you remember that in this verse, they're rowing as fast as they can. I can just see them, you know, trying to find another way than to carry the responsibility of murder. No, God increases the rage of the storm. So their efforts became fruitless because God's objective was to get him over the edge of the ship. He had to come to the end of his self-life. God wanted him to die. So, they booted him off. The men then call on Jonah's God. This is just mind-bending to me. They tried their gods. That didn't work out so well. Now they're actually calling on Jonah's God, our God, the Hebrew God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's who they start calling on. We got salvations happening around us before Nineveh even kicked in. Why? Because of Jonah's rebellion. So Jonah could easily look at the salvations around him at this point and say, yeah, baby, I still got it. It had nothing to do with Jonah. It had everything to do with fear being transferred to God. So the men went from fear of the storm Fear of the ship breaking apart. Fear of losing their lives. Fear of their God now. Their God's not responding. And now the fear being transferred and translated over to the Hebrew God. That's the step-by-step process that Jesus was comparing himself to. Jonah cowards again. So the men go ahead and take the action. 16, the men got the blessing. Jonah did not. As soon as Jonah's footprints touched the top of the water, there was no walking on water like Peter. He sunk like a brick. Immediately, the, call, the God put a calm over the sea and he blessed the men. So they wouldn't have to fear the consequences of murder so that they would have an overwhelming sense of that God, the Hebrew God, is in control. And then verse 17, Jonah gets swallowed up uh, alive. And then Jonah prays. Uh, Someone read to the group Jonah's prayer. It's a very, very fascinating coming to the end of yourself prayer. Yes, please. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Thou dost didst hear my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All thy breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from thy sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward thy holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But thou hast brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. 
While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee, into thy holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Okay, now this is very interesting because he uses, four times he uses the term, the pit of hell. Shoel is hell. Actual hell doesn't occur, as you know, until Satan is thrown into the pit at the end, and then the terminology switches from Hades to hell. Old Testament hell is Shoel, or Shoal as many people pronounce it. Then it goes to Hades after Jesus died on the cross, which is more of a paradise. That's why the Catholics believe in this paradise that people go after they die. Jesus moved the term paradise over to heaven, and Hades was left. So it is a holding tank of some sort until final judgment then hell is revealed to the people and that is where everyone is casted after judgment. So theologically, those are the phases of hell. So Shoal is actually this pit, this horrid place of the enemy. And, and Jonah is comparing himself in his confession, in his prayer, to being in the belly of Satan's domain, the pet, the belly of Shoal. Jesus compares himself for the, in the same way. He dies on the cross. The three days he was in the tomb, he went to the belly of Hades. He descended into the lower parts and paid the price for our sins. In the belly of Satan. This is the comparison that is going on here. This prayer is so rich with doctrines, it'll blow your mind. So to have Jesus Christ talk about the story of Jonah over most other stories in the entire Old Testament is a significant statement. So when he talks about being delivered, being coughed up, being spit out from the belly of darkness is exactly what happened to Jesus. He was so incredibly righteous and pure and holy that the belly of Satan's domain could not hold him. And it spit him out of that tomb. Still redeemed. Still pure. Still holy. And unstained. You see, a lot of people have preached sermons about the starch of the stomach of the whale. You know, bleaching Jonah. And I've seen paintings and drawings and pictures of Jonah standing there as white as a sheep because he was bleached during those three days. That is actually a biblical comparison. Jesus did not get stained. Jonah did. And the evidence of this is how selfish Jonah becomes after he was delivered. So, he is literally now, after this prayer, which I call the self-life prayer, he is getting real with God. And if you really take the time and break down this prayer, and if you have a concordance, and if you have a Strong's Number Bible, if you piece this down a little bit yourself, you'll see the power of this confession of honest appraisal. It is just unbelievable the level of confession that takes place. He sees God is the one who manipulates all circumstances. He pulled it all together. It's God who, who, who tossed me into the sea. It's God who put me into the pit of, of, of hell. It is God who, he sees God in charge 
of all circumstances. I don't know many Christians today talk like that. No. They stand against Satan like he's some kind of foe that can be fought against on their own. And they refuse. In fact, many times I believe, if not the majority of the times, I believe Christians put their finger in the face of God say, I renounce you in Jesus' name, you devil, you demon. And in reality, they are pointing the finger at God. I would like to see Jonah do that. Do you realize that the archangel himself refused to talk to Satan? Book of Jude. He says, the Lord rebukes you. You see, the very archangel who does warfare was not about to do this. But yet it's built into our Christian society. And many times we are pointing our fingers at a living, sovereign God who's in control of all storms, all circumstances, all, all things, and rebuking him. Our church is sick. We do not understand the sovereignty of God. And that's why I pray, God, is if this oppression that I'm sensing is of thy divine will, give me the strength not to be pulled in by it. Now that's an appropriate prayer. And if you choose, O oh God, to remove this from me, so be it. It's putting the emphasis on God manipulates circumstances. Verse 4. Looks to God throughout this whole reality session. That's probably a very good thing. 5 through 10 is Jonah's honest appraisal, which is what we just read. And then, whoops, there's more there. Uh, Jonah goes and does exactly what he was told to do in the power and strength of God instead of the power and strength of himself. So, we have come to the point, last verse, chapter 3, where Jonah goes, Oh, okay, okay, I fear you, O God. And you alone. Chapter 4, bringing this to a close. Verse 1, Jonah is displeased with God's work. Okay, this is a little bit odd, isn't it? I mean, this is a, this is, this is a drama story. The reason why there are so many dramas about Jonah is because it is a perfect drama story. Any good scriptwriter could write a play or a movie on this. It's easy. That's why there's so many children's stories about it. They almost write the dialogue for you. So Jonah goes through all of this process of realizing that God is a sovereign God. And when he says go, he's kind of serious. And so he gets spit out of the belly of Shoal. And he's standing there on the shores of Nineveh, which, remember, if you look at your map, it's quite a journey. It took that whale three days exactly to get up that river to Nineveh. Spits him out on dry land. He's standing there. And God says the exact same words as he said before. He did not come up with brand new words. Thus says the Lord, go. It's like a parent saying, okay, I just spent three hours getting you under control. Now go clean your room. Don't adjust the command because of the power of the child's rebellion. It will destroy a child. So Jonah goes. Goes through the city. One day we see all these wonderful, incredibly uh, uh, conversions. 100% return on his work. And he gets displeased with God's work. So someone read verse 1 for us. 
Jonah and he became angry. Wow. That's just... That's, that's good, Jonah. Well, see, I can relate to Jonah. My flesh relates to Jonah. I have pity parties. When counseling sessions don't turn out the way I wanted them to, or preaching doesn't turn out the way that I wanted to, or what, blah, 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 blah. You see, because Jonah's flesh pattern was, if it's not done Ma's way, I'm going to punish you, God. And then when I'm done punishing you, I'm going to set someone up to murder me. Because I don't even want to live. I just want to die. That's Jonah's flesh pattern. My way or die way. That's it. Even if you are God, I'm displeased with you. That is a direct offense to God. And God is not easily mocked. He isn't. So he complains to God. Verse 2 says what? Oh my. I have a hard time reading this long verse. It's the longest verse in Jonah. I have a real tough time reading it because I really, really, really can relate to this verse. Saying all the right words. It's, it's a true reality session. But at the same time, he's using truth to lie again. Oh, but God, I know. I did that. I, I went to Tarshish because I realized that you were a loving God and you're slow to anger and you're abundant in your loving kindness and that is flat out what the emergent people believe today. Love, 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 love. <laughs> Jonah is not making the connection yet. Did he in the end? They don't tell us. God has his ordained reasons for not telling us if he ever got it. But he's not making the connection. He's using God's own words. And this is what subordinates do when they're caught. They don't submit. They use the authority's words to stick it in their face to say, you are wrong. Remember we talked about Adam? When he said, when the Hebrew emphasis is the woman which thou gave me. You see, we have taught and, and preached that in churches for so long that he was blaming the woman. And in the Hebrew, that is simply not the case. He's saying the woman which thou gave me. This is the same thing Jonah's doing. Jonah is saying, God, yeah, there, he's, he's far more manipulative than what Adam was doing. But, you know, the reason why I did that is because you're so loving and forgiving and compassionate and I knew I could get away with it. That's what he's saying. This here is the prophetic utterance of the emergent church, Laodicea. Using God's words to soften the blow. So, God took him, just like God did with Adam. Didn't argue with him. Didn't try to prove his point. He just decided to take action. So that's why when I hear subordinates do this, whether it's from a ministry I'm consulting for, or a counselee, as soon as I hear the utterance of God's words stuffed in my face, I take action. Because it's the scripture. That's what God did. He didn't argue. So here's what happened. He asked God to kill him. He knew what was next. <laughs> he, he knew. He manipulated God with his own words. I'm the manipulator of circumstances. No. 
actually, Jonah, you're not. So, here's what he says. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. That's a little odd, isn't it? Not for Jonah's flesh. Because death is better than having to submit to this God who is just in control of everything. What child likes to be controlled by their parent? Do you know one? Oh, they learn to grow in it. And then when they get old, we hope they never part from it. But I don't know a child who says, Oh, mommy, control me. Rule over me. Tell me what to do. Spank me. No. It is, oh, I hate you. I will kill myself. So when we run off to our rooms, I, I hate her, I hate her, I hate her. That's what Jonah was doing here. He was pitching a fit. And the way Jonah did it is, he threatened with death. Not a good habit to get into. I have a personal belief of how this ended. And I don't want to preach on it because I don't know. But personally, I believe God took him. It was done. Nothing was ever stated on Jonah's life ever again. In history, written by God's people or secular people. Nothing was ever mentioned of him again. But I don't know. Verse 4, God addresses his displeased anger. He says, do you have a reason to be angry here? Seriously. Got a reason? That I should take your life away from you? Verse 5, Jonah goes and does his own thing again. So I'm going to read verse 5 for us because it's a pretty significant verse. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it and, uh, in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Okay, so the, obviously the revelation is here is that when he's having this little discussion with God, he's on the edge of the city, he hasn't gone up to the hill yet, and he's just kind of waiting now for God to you know, get out his little lightning bolt thing that he's got going there. And he's waiting like, okay, let's just zap these people. I did what I did, put them in the belly, just like you put me in the belly. It's going to feel so good. I love vengeance. Well, that's man's flesh. You're going to suffer as I suffered in misery loves company. If my sister's in trouble, I'm going to get in trouble with her. Or if I'm in trouble, I'm going to get my sister in trouble. I hate discipline by myself. That's the flesh of any human. So God has this gracious little talk with him. Doesn't yell at him. You know, none of that. And he just packs up his toys and goes, I'm going to the top of the hill. And he just marches his way to the top of the hill, sets out his little picnic, sets there, and he is expecting God to obey him and literally zap that whole city. He wanted a perfect seat, just like we do in the end times. Abby and I kind of joke about it. We, we kind of look forward to seeing the enemy dealt with. Well, that's our flesh, but... I still look forward to it. <laughs> and he's like he's sitting there going, oh, this is going to be good. Fireworks. <laughs> you know, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah. He's just going to nuke the city. Number one, I think Jonah understood Hebrew law. And Hebrew law says, you are never to observe the revenge of the Lord. Like with Sodom and Gomorrah, when, when God gave the mandate, you head that way and don't you dare turn around. And women love to see destruction, so when she turns around, say, ah, don't do it. And she didn't. She turned into a pillar of salt. Well, Jonah is in the face of God now. Right on. He's sitting there like, this is going to be good. 
Very arrogant. Very wrong. And if he's Hebrew like he says he is, he knows it's wrong. So this is a significant verse. Setting up a picnic at the top of the hill to observe the Lord paying vengeance on this converted city that is now Christian. 100% Christian. God appoints a shelter. So I can just, you know, see God, you know, see the ground. Jonah's sitting there, this is picnic. And God supernaturally grows this tree up overnight. For shelter. Because he's having a picnic against God. So here now, Jonah is sitting there on the hill and this tree is growing up over him to provide this shade and this shelter for, you know, God's on my side. He's even given me a shade tree so I can watch the nuke. No, that's not exactly what God had in store. God was about to show him how displeased he is with Jonah and how pleased he is with his own work through Jonah. The exchange life is in this story. Well, God destroys the shelter. What does he do? The Hebrew word there means Satan, enemy, defiled one, evil one. A wormwood is one of the 13 names of Satan. God takes a wormwood, woodworm, and he puts it in that tree and it eats out the core of that tree and it wilts. <sighs> so now he's sitting there, this supernatural tree that was providing this wonderful shade, and all of a sudden it's wilted. God's still in control of 100% of his circumstances. And it wilts and he's like, This is interesting. Someone read verse 8 for me. And it came about when the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that it became so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die saying death is better to me than life. Oh, number 3 again. So here we go. God you know, the sun comes up every morning. But then, that, so that's not unusual. So God wasn't appointing the sun. The sun is already set up as a symbol of heat and light and destruction and whatever. So that's why there's no sun in heaven, by the way. The light in heaven will be from the radiance of the temple of God. There will be no sun. That's why God darkens it in the end. But that's another sermon. So, the sun comes up as normal, but God appoints a scorching wind. Suck the very moisture out of your throat and beating on his head. And the tree is wilted. It's like, man, death is better than this. Well, we'll see. God asks one more time. Someone read verse 9. And God said to Jonah, do you have any good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Okay, do you see a transfer from circumstance to circumstance to circumstance to circumstance to circumstance? Jo Jonah is, excuse me, always angry at a circumstance. Which happens to be sovereignly controlled by God. So God actually uses the silly tree, which is valueless. And he literally appointed the tree to grow up. He took uh, a satanic element, put it in the tree to wilt it, appointed a scourging wind to dry him up, to bring him to the edge of his flesh again. And so he's begging for death instead of serving God. And then God asks about the plant. And this displaced anger 
that Jonah is experiencing is because he's displeased with God, not the plant. But he knows that Jonah is all about the wind, the waves, the storm, the belly, the, the, the starching. The, that's what Jonah's about. He is about external things. And he knows, God knows, that Jonah scoops up truth and rubs that truth in the face of authority, whether it's the captain of the ship or the living God of the universe. That is Job's violation, is using truth as a lie. And the man must be broken of this. And God was taking him through a full-on controlled deduction to get Jonah to the point of admitting that. Verse 10. God confronts Job and says, Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Now, God forbid, but if I was God, I wouldn't pick on the plant. But you know, God does meet man where his depraved mind is and addresses the issue that the depraved mind is warring with. It's called counseling. And then finally, verse 11, here we have it. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh? God moves it from the tree to Nineveh because the tree is symbolic of Nineveh and the evil inside Nineveh. He put the evil inside the tree. Full on comparison here. The great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, which is actually uh, clarified there in the Hebrew as depraved, which is the term that's used in the New Testament when Christ refers to a depraved mind. So they don't know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals. And then God just simply stops. No, yes, sir. You were right. I repent. Now here's what my mentor would say. That the process of Jonah going through this life story was he met salvation. In the belly of the, the whale is where salvation occurred. Jesus Christ going to the lower parts and paying that price for my sins is where salvation is. And then being spit out on the shore, which I recently had to face, what is God asking me? Where is my Nineveh today? And as you know, with this new commission that's been given to me with this international ministry, that is my Nineveh. So here he comes out and he goes in and starts doing the Nineveh thing, but he's still expecting God to kowtow to him. So, we believe in the exchange live teachings of not I but Christ, Romans 6.6, 6, Galatians 2.20, that you have to be reintroduced to the other half of the cross. Not only did Jesus Christ die on the cross and go into the belly for you so that, that you didn't have to have the Jonah story, but you need to understand that you have been crucified with Christ too. That is what this is. You're not in control, Jonah. You never will be. This book can preach and preach and preach and preach. There's so many beautiful Hebrew word pictures in this book. It is just absolutely filled with beautiful word pictures from Torah, the cross, to this belly of Satan. To, there's so many beautiful word pictures here. God's goal was for Jonah to simply get over 
his own stuff so that God could go on with his stuff through Jonah. So if Jonah felt sorrow over the plant, which cost him absolutely nothing, no effort to grow, in which God proves is short-lived and valueless. It's like someone praying for some external circumstance. Help me, God, to get the money for the down payment on my car that I'm going to buy in debt. And that. Okay. Probably not a real accurate prayer, but God meets us there. And that is the kind of things that poor Jonah was suffering with. Wealth, circumstances, external things. So, much more he must not, he, meaning God, not feel sorry for Jonah, so he, God, could minister to over 120,000 hurting and lost people. As we would probably say today in a modern buzzword is, get over it, Jonah. Stop it. Move on. But that's easier said than done. And God knows that, and that's why God graciously deals with us. The story of Jonah is one of the most powerful stories in the Bible on the topic of self-pity and how God is actually tougher on those who walk in Jonah's footprints. It would be fun for us to conclude with God is easier on people who are like Jonah, but that simply is not the case. So if you want a fruitful, easier, light life, don't follow Jonah's footprints. Don't take the truth of the Word of God and rub it in the face of your authority figures and expect them to kowtow or obey you. Honor and submission are the exact same word in the Greek. Honor and respect is the same word in the Greek. These English translations pick the ones they like to put into the scriptures, but they mean the same thing. God just wanted Jonah to honor him as God. I mean, look how much trouble he could have saved when God brought the word himself to Jonah and said, um, look at your clock. This is synchronized. Okay, I need to have you get over to Nineveh. It's about a three and a half day journey. So uh, pack, get ready, go. Now once you're there, I'm going to give you instructions. Got it? Good. Gets over, heads across the desert, Tough, one of the toughest deserts in the world, gets over there, shows up in Nineveh. Okay, God, what's next? All right, now I want you to head down this street, and I will put my words in your mouth. Be bold, be immovable, and don't worry about what they'll do to you. Because they're going to try to kill you. But since you don't have a fear of death, Jonah, and you don't like playing the edge of death, you'll be fine. But see, he did have a thing about death. So, but we're looking at the positive side. So he goes in there and just preaches the gospel of Hebrew at the time. He preaches the gospel of Hebrew and they're falling on their faces. But it was not. Not one soul fell to their knees until the king was reached. If your household is saved, I mean your head of your house is saved, your whole house gets saved. God always goes for the king. God always goes for the leader. God always brings the leader to their knees. And the rest will fall like dominoes. And that's what happened in Nineveh. Read it yourself. It's in there. It was the king warring with the reality of the Hebrew God. And he required the people to fall on their faces. Don't tell me authority doesn't work. And that it is not the anointing of God that flows through those leaders. Jonah would have come out of that city and he would have probably responded this way to God. Okay, God, I, I trust you and I, I know that you're going to do what you want to do. You're the sovereign God. But please don't treat them the way I got treated. 
please. Could you like give them a break? Could we preserve their conversion? Sure, I'll do that. Good call, Jonah. Let's go on down to Babylon. I think the story would have continued. That's why I seriously believe there's a real good chance that things stopped on that day for Jonah. Because the lesson was for us. For Jesus to talk about it. His own son. And it is sad to say that the majority of the people on the face of the earth go to hell after this lesson. They do. They don't get it. Jesus said, many are on the wide path to Nineveh. Few are on the narrow path to heaven. And few are on it. That reality is here. But God showed the supernatural grace of 120,000 members getting saved on that day. 100% on the right road. And Jonah's still warring as a leader, as a preacher, as a prophet. Jonah is one of the ones I want to spend some time with because I can relate to a lot of Jonah's stuff because I've tried and tested and pulled and stretched on God's sovereignty so many times that I am quite thankful for his grace and his mercy. Thank you for joining us today. Heartland Family Fellowship is a local church plant here in Sterling, Kansas. Our fellowship includes the family and all levels of worship. Our mission is to bring families back together spiritually, relationally, and physically. Many people ask us, what does that really mean, or how does it benefit them? Well, it means that you can bring your entire family to any of Heartland's events, and we will work to keep the focus on God, Jesus Christ, and the body of Christ without dividing up the family at the front door. If you're interested in learning more about our fellowship or other family-integrated fellowships, please log on to our website. That is www.heartlandfellowships.org. We thank you for joining us. Get yourself in a bind, lose a shirt off your back. Need a floor, need a couch, need a bus fare.